So we're up to Mark 7. So this morning, we're actually not going to start at the start of Mark 7. You know those movies, sometimes they're really annoying and sometimes they're awesome, where, where they actually start at the end and then go back and tell you what, how it got there? We're going to actually do that this morning. And so we're actually going to start at Mark 24. And we're going to unpack that a little bit, but then we're going to go back to Mark 1. Uh, Mark, sorry, Mark 7, 24, go back to Mark 7, 1. You're going to be looking for Mark 24 for a while. <laughs> okay, moving right along. Now, one of the things that, that we've kind of glided over as we've been doing Mark, and we, we looked at it when we did the introduction to Mark, we've kind of just slipped over, is some of the places that Jesus was actually at when he was doing these things. But it becomes, uh, it's always been significant, it becomes a little bit more significant now. Because in Mark 7, 24, it says, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. Now, if you look at this map, Jesus has been hanging out in this area here around the Sea of Galilee, predominantly on this side, but we heard a couple of weeks ago of Jesus going across to the other side and the guy that was in the tombs, the guy that was possessed, he was from that other side. But predominantly, Jesus has been hanging around this area here and the Jewish region of the area is, is this whole block. And so you can see down there, Jew Jerusalem, Bethany we hear about a bit later on. There's a bunch of places that we hear about, but this is the Jewish belt, Galilee, Samaria, Judea. But right here at Mark 7, 24, Jesus heads up to Tyre. Now, this is a little bit weird because he's out of his turf and he's out in a direction that's kind of a bit strange. This is not a Jewish area. This is, this is the foreigners. This is Greeks. This is people that are a bit, bit weird and, and we'll get to that in a minute. Some people accuse Mark of not having very good geography and think that he doesn't know destinations. And there's, uh, later on, we come in Mark um, 8, I think it is, we come to another place where Jesus says, uh, went from this place to that place and that place. And you go, why would he go from there up to there and then down to here? Like it, it doesn't seem to add up. It's more of a reflection on the way Mark tells the story than it is of his geography. He does, he does know where these places are. But what actually happens at the end of Mark 7 is he goes from Tyre. And this is, um, we're not going to actually cover this, but it's just interesting to know. He says, he goes from Tyre to the Decapolis through Sidon. Now, can anyone see where Sidon is? Above Tyre. So he makes this trek up around here down to get to there. So you can see Mark's um, not so much about uh, the logistics of the journey, more about the locations that he went to. And so it's important to understand that. But what's also important is to understand why he's going up to Tyre. And we get a clue in uh, Mark 7 of this journey up to Tyre. It says, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. So we get a clue that he's hiding. Jesus is hiding. And this kind of messes with our heads a little bit. Why is Jesus hiding? And yet when we look at the pattern of conversations it has with people, he often says to them, be healed, but don't go and tell anyone. Don't go and tell anyone. And there's a number of things that we already know about this journey that Jesus has been on. We've heard about John the Baptist getting killed. And how did he get killed? Beheaded by Herod. And so Herod thinks that John the Baptist is back alive. If you've just killed someone and they're back alive, they're a threat. They're a problem. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit of an issue. We've also seen when he fed the, uh, the, the 5,000 that there's a possibility that there was a chance of an uprising going on here. People were attaching Jesus to Jesus for potentially the wrong reason. 
And we've also seen, because remember where the, the Pharisees and, and the teachers of the law are coming from? And we'll get to this a little bit later too. They've come from Jerusalem. So he's hanging out up here, but they've come from Jerusalem. And what are they doing when they're spending time with Jesus? High fives and hugs? No. They're constantly at him. They're at him. There's a lot of tension. And so you can see Jesus tried to get his disciples to take a break. And yet there was a crowd of 5,000 people that came and followed them. So you can see this attempt to go up to Tyre is actually, it's a bit of respite. It's a bit of a breather. It's a bit of the, the momentum, the pace of what God wants to do through Jesus. He's not, he's not ready to die yet. There's more to be done. And these things that are, that are pressing against him, he's chosen to step around and go up to Tyre, Sidon, and around to the Decapolis. He's avoiding the Jewish areas for a little while. And that's where we get to in this little passage. And it's really significant to understand that. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. That's the area that he's in. That's where Tyre is. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, this is a one-sentence parable. <laughs> it's a really interesting phrase. And some people really struggle with this passage because Jesus comes across very heartless here. What he's saying is, God is the God who has children and his children are the Jewish people. You're not Jewish. You're like a dog. We go, whoa, hang on. That's pretty offensive. That's pretty grating. Like, doesn't Jesus love everybody? What, who is this guy? And we read that and go, this doesn't sound right. But if you look at the phrasing, he says, first, let the children eat. And that word children, it's interesting. Children gets used twice here. They're different words. This is where English kind of doesn't do it justice. The children here is the heirs, the children that are the parent's child, the heirs of the property, if that makes sense. So he's saying, first, let the children, the heirs, God's children, the Jewish people, eat what they want. For it is not right to take the children's bread, what was given to them, and toss it to the dogs. And again, dogs here, very carefully, is not the rabid dogs out on the street. They think of dogs the way we do. They, they didn't think of them as, you know, worshipped animals. They were lowly animals. But this dog is a, is a little dog that you would have as a pet, right? So this isn't a, a rabid mongrel out in a street. This is a pet dog. So it's still way down here. It's not, he's not trying to say that they're special, but he's saying... For it's not right to take the children's bread, what was given to the, the, the Jewish people, and feed it to the dogs, the pets. It's interesting. Her reply is even more interesting. Well, is equally interesting. Lord, she replies, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So even the pet dogs get to eat, and this is a different children, this is now the household. So this would have included servants, the children of the house, the, the ones that are not in authority. So she's gone around and said, even those that eat at the table still have crumbs for the animals, the dogs that are, that are there among them as well. 
These two lines are fascinating because they unpack something really significant. Jesus' response to her is, For such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her, her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Do you know this is the first time in Mark that someone actually got his parable? And guess who gets the parable? A Greek woman. So we've talked about hierarchy before. We've got your Pharisees and Sadducees that got their stuff together. Way down lower than them is the woman who um, was bleeding. She's, she's an outcast. Lower than her, because she didn't choose that, or a crippled person didn't choose that, is a tax collector because they're a Jew and they, um, in fact, have chosen to disobey the, God's law. So they're lower than someone who had an affliction against them. This lady's not even on the radar. She's not even a, a Jew. She has no birthright, has no identity, nothing. She's a Greek. And culturally, she's a Greek female. Now, that's not relevant or appropriate today, but at the time, that is really significant. So the first person that understands what Jesus is saying is the lowest of the low. That is profound. That is profound. And Jesus' response to her isn't shut up and go away. Who are you to try and claim authority? She says, you've got it. You, you have nailed it. Because... Not only she is the lowest of the low, she recognizes how high Jesus is. She says to him, I'm happy just to take the crumbs. She doesn't rebuke that she's like a dog. She doesn't get offended at that. She says, just the crumbs. If you can just give me the crumbs, I will be wrapped. This is an amazing revelation of who Jesus is and who is prepared to bring into that revelation. He's invited this woman. He's shared the truth of his first bringing this message to the Jews and it's the way he's going to do it. But she gets that and she says, just the crumbs. Both of their positions are phenomenal and are, are amazing in terms of what that means for us. And the reason I've started here is because this morning we're going to do something a little different. Because so often we play this hierarchy game and we have this separation between me and you. Do you know the difference between me and you? Apart from I'm probably a bit bigger, I'm wearing shorts. There's a few things that are different, I get that. It's just that I've got a microphone. That's the difference this morning is that I've got a microphone and I've had some time to prepare. But in actual fact, when we look at the way Jesus treats people, there is so much significance of what you have to experience of him today. And so often we, we do this thing, it's like, ah, Matt's up the front, he's preaching, he's got the word. What's the word? It's the scripture and the spirit bringing it to life. Is it? So who says that I have a right to that word more than you do? Who says that there's some people that are qualified to be able to read and to be able to pray and to be able to unpack these things rather than somebody else. Who says that? Did he say that? No, he said the opposite. He said the one that's the lowest, that doesn't even have a Jewish background, shouldn't even be understanding this thing, is the one that gets it. He says the one that's the lowest not only gets it, but he's going to bless them. He's going to give them 
what their heart cry was for. When they asked for crumbs, did he give her crumbs? He gave her what she needed. The rich blessing of a God that wants to lavish his love and bring healing to people, restore the relationship. And he said, you ask for crumbs, but I'm gonna give you a kingdom. In these two simple little lines, there's this sense of Jesus saying, it does not matter where you think you come from. It does not matter what you're wearing or what titles you have or what study you've done. It does not matter what crimes you've committed or your heritage or who, whose parents you have. What it matters is how you see Jesus. And if you're coming this morning with a heart to see Jesus, to hear His Word, to know His truth, to speak through His Spirit, then there's, really, there's a lot of significance in what you have to share this morning. And I just want to share a couple of passages. So Hebrews 4.12, these are familiar, but I, they just need to ground where we're going. For the Word of God is alive and active. Yeah, is it? Yes. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Who? Who's equipped for every good work? Matt. Just Matt? Rubbish. Who's a servant of God? Put your hand up if you're a servant of God. So who's it for? All of us. So now... With the conclusion, we're going to head back to Mark 1. And this is going to be terrible for the people listening on the podcast. I apologize to you because this is just not going to work for them. But what we're going to do is we're going to go through Mark 1 to Mark 23. And um, I'm going to start by praying now. But as we go through it, I want you to think of two things. What are you observing? And what does that mean for us? And I'm just going to unpack a couple of the bits in there that I've had time to prepare. So I've been able to read commentaries. I've been able to look up stuff. You haven't had that advantage. So I'm just going to catch you up with the things to unpack some of the tricky bits in there. We can all do that. That's not something that you need a theological degree to do. But what we're going to do at the end of that is we're going to, and we've got to separate them. It's going to be hard because everyone wants to go to, this is what I think they're talking about. Let's observe first. Yeah, we're going to observe first. And then we're going to apply second. Is that cool? So let's just pray. Lord, we believe that your word is living and active. And Lord, we want your word to speak to us. It is alive. It is, it is there to separate your truth from things that deceive and trick us, Lord God. Lord, we want to be people that do your good works. Lord, we want to be people that stand on your truth and live out life based on the way you speak and the way you, you declare things. Because what you say is good. What you say is true and what you say has purpose for our lives. And so we want to do that this morning. I pray, Lord, for anyone here that thinks they are not worthy to receive your word, that they are not worthy to, to have discernment and understanding of what you're saying, Lord. Lord, I just, I just rebuke that now in Jesus' name. Lord, because you do not have people that are set apart for this, Lord God. You set everybody who calls you Lord and Saviour apart for purpose, for intention. And Lord, we claim that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we good? Let's go back. Mark 1, 
Uh, Mark 7, sorry, Darren, I'm doing it again. Mark 7, 1 to 8. The Pharisees and some teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem, they've come a long way, yeah, they're, they're on a mission, they're not happy people, gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, Mark is talking to a Roman audience who aren't, aren't necessarily Jews. They would be understanding of Jewish culture, but he just explains what that means. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. So this is washing the right way, holding to the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Right. Now, there's something really interesting in here that we wouldn't pick up on, the tradition of the elders. And to understand this, there's a little bit of a clue there because they had the Torah, which was the written word of God. But what they'd also done is they, what called the, the Mishnah. Let me pronounce that right. Mishnah, Mishnah. The Mishnah was the oral tradition, right? So we've got the Torah, but they saw that as like the policy book. These are the policies but how do we outwork it? What do we do? And so they had the oral tradition, which was all the things that on top of the Torah, they'd built up over time, things that were spoken. And it wasn't until the third century that they actually wrote it down. So at this time, it wasn't written down, but it was spoken. And, and the Pharisees and others felt that they were the ones to carry this oral tradition. They were responsible for it, and the scribes too, of this tradition. So we've got the policies in the Torah, but we've got this other stuff and there was lots of it, lots and lots of it. And Jesus refers to it as the tradition of the elders, okay? So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Also realize that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law saw themselves as God's anointed. They're, they're the ones who carry this. So they, they see themselves as significant in, uh, in a godly sense. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teaching are merely human rules. See what he's done there? Merely human rules? <laughs> he's brought what their, their oral tradition down to something that's not from God. This is, is, hypocrites is one thing, but to say what you're teaching is not from God is pretty significant. He doesn't stop there. You have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to human traditions. He's actually telling them that their traditions are, are in contrast, in separation from what God's saying. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God, again, this tension, in order to observe your own traditions. These aren't from God. He's making this very clear. For Moses said, honour your father and mother and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. So this is Torah stuff now. He's talking about what's in the Torah. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you will you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down and you do many things like that. 
Now, this word Corbin, I, I had no concept of this before this week and I looked into it. It's a fascinating idea that they'd added to the Torah. So this isn't in the first five books of the Bible. This is an interpretation that says you can declare something. So let's say I've got a house. I can say I'm going to dedicate that to God when I die. So it's mine to be in control of now. But when I die, it goes to the church. That it's, I'm dedicating it to God. And you could do that with anything. You could do it with a cup. You could do it with any number of things. Now, what the possibility is here is I am responsible for my parents' well-being. As they get older, they're my problem. But that might mean that I might have to sell my house to pay for something for them. Or I might actually have to give them some of my property. Or I might I actually lose what's mine to have to help my parents. So I can get around this if I declare it Corbin. Because I get to hold on to it. They can't use it because it's God's now. It's not mine. I've dedicated it to God. But I just get to look after it for God until I die. So there's a twisted way of doing this where I get to keep it. I don't have to share it with my family. But I can declare it's God's so that when I no longer need it anymore, it goes to the church. Did, does this make sense? This twisted model. And they were advocating this. Why do you think they were advocating it? They get it. <laughs> so who ends up with the property? You know, mums and dads who, are, who are, can't look after themselves miss out. And society-wise, there's no nursing homes in this, this society. This is your, if your parents are your responsibility. And so they were allowing people to undermine the care and responsibility of their parents using a, a twisted sense of this Corbin. Nice idea, dedicate something to the, to the church. That's a cool idea. But it was being manipulated to benefit those that were in power and in control. So that's what's happening here. And he says, you are actually undermining what God has said in the Torah. And you do many things like this. This is just an example. Again, Jesus called the crowds to him and said, so now he's not talking to Pharisees, he's talking to everyone. Listen to me, everyone. And again, and understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowds and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parallel. Are you so dull? See the contrast already of what, what this Greek woman Instantly goes, I know what you're talking about and what's going on. And he's, he's talked to the Pharisees, he's talked to the crowds, he's gone aside and he says they're dull. They, this is not you idiots, this is you're clouded. You're not seeing properly, yeah? So dull, understand, he's not, he's not telling them that you're idiots, he's just saying you're blinded, you're clouded in this place, in this space. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their hearts, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. You see how Mark pops that in there? This is significant when Mark's writing. This is very significant when Mark's writing the gospel. And so he, he, doesn't, just, he doesn't do a lot of commentary, um, but in this case, he feels it necessary to actually clearly articulate that he's saying all foods are clean. This is a topic uh, that's, that's very significant at the time. But it is actually more significant, broadly speaking, he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, 
greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Interestingly, the first six are things that you do to someone and the second six are things that you think you, you do out of a, a thought. So there's, there's practical and there's, there's thought here. So we've all read it now. What did you observe? We're not talking about application. We're not talking about what we think it is for our lives. But what stood out to you when you observed this, when you, when you read this? And obviously, I brought a little bit of attention to things. Hopefully, that didn't distort you, your perspectives too much. That was more to help understand what he was talking about. What did you observe in this passage? What stood out? Washing your hands isn't going to fix anything. What else did people observe? What stood out? What did you notice? Where our hearts are? The stuff about defiling. What defiles someone? doesn't go into their hearts, but into their stomachs. Yeah, really interesting observation. What else did you observe? Yep. So there was, you could see the Pharisees' issues in there of, of taking something that God intended for good and they'd created a, a whole heap of other layers there. Like that really stands out, doesn't it? That really, to me, that stands out significantly. That there's the, this oral tradition versus the truth of what God was saying, what, what the people were carrying was, was so far. Jesus pointed out how far apart it was. They were in contrast. They were in they were really significant stuff. What else do you observe? Anyone else want to? Even his disciples didn't understand what he was saying. Doesn't that make you feel a bit more relieved? <laughs> so often people might ask you a question or you might read something and go, I don't get it. God doesn't leave us there. But he's okay with us starting there. You see again that the Syrophoenician lady, the Greek lady, that it was her hunger. It wasn't that she had it all together. She was a nobody. But Jesus said that hunger, that desire is significant. It's not that you got it all together. That's awesome. Any, any other observations? Yeah, he's talking relevant to the person that he's talking to. Yeah, Jesus cares about the relationship with these people. And it's pretty clear that the Pharisees didn't want to have any relationship with him. They wanted the rules. They, they wanted to maintain their power. And he, he went, no, 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 this is not about, you're on a power trip. That's not my agenda here. You're actually undermining my agenda by your power trip. Yeah, really interesting. And that ties into what Orange just said, because there's this possibility that we actually take these words and become like Pharisees and we forget the intention of the words and we treat it like a checklist. Yeah, fascinating, amazing. This is brilliant. I don't have to pre prepare another message in my life. This is unreal. And, and this is why I want to do this because I had a real sense and talking with a couple of people this week, it came to light. Yeah, I really had a sense. At first I thought God was just holding back because he wasn't giving me the answers. Normally I have a sense of God going, ah, oh, bring this out, highlight this, share this, bring this to life. And, and there was a resistance there where as I was praying and as I was reading, I was like, what's the go here? And as I did that and kind of read through it and got to that position of the Greek woman, I realised that the significant thing is you. The significant thing is you. And as we've been going through Mark, we've been very careful not to make it a theological study that makes you feel like it's not approachable. Because this word is alive and active. 
This word has purpose for our lives. This word had meaning not for one or two, but for every person here. Doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter where you come from. I would hate to think that you don't feel that the word is approachable. For me, it's really important for you to know that the word is approachable for you. And all we're doing today is a simple acronym called SOAP. Scripture, observation, application, prayer. You don't need to have a theological degree to do SOAP. And there's different acronyms, there's different ways of people package it up, but it's the same concept. Get into the Word because it is living and active for our lives. And the interesting thing is that, I believe, is part of what God wants to say in this passage. We can get caught up with the wrong agenda. We can get distorted with oral tradition. Can anyone think of oral traditions that we get caught up with? There's heaps of them. Saying hello to somebody first thing in the morning. Yep. That's an oral tradition. Yep. What's an oral tradition that we follow? Come on. I've got hundreds of them. Happy birthday. Yep. Merry Christmas. Yep. What about in this place? Can I suggest, can I suggest getting together at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, sitting in rows of chairs and listening to someone at the front is an oral tradition? Is it? Does anyone read that in Scripture? No? That's something that's been passed down to us as an oral tradition. Yeah? Is it bad? Possibly. Possibly. If we think about it like a Pharisee, if I think it's the only way to go and it's the way to get to God, and there's, there's, we've got problems. We've got problems. We've got to watch this oral tradition. It doesn't necessarily mean it's bad, though. Don't hear me, please. What else is an oral tradition? In this church base, what's an oral tradition? What's things that have been passed down by our parents or by the culture around us? Three fast songs, two slow songs. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> that's, that's very true. Anyone else want to have a go at church? Only the elite can pray. What rubbish. No women up the front. There's heaps of stuff. And I'm not, I'm not throwing stones. You've got to be careful throwing stones. I've got my own oral traditions that I've got to help unpack. And people here have to help me unpack and encourage me in those spaces where I'm holding on to something so tightly. And I go, ah, oh, what's behind that? It's like, oh, I don't know. It's just how it's always been. We've got to be careful about this stuff. But there's so much in this space. And to conclude with, it would be very easy for us to, the application to be something that we tell other people what they should be doing, yeah? That's a bit of an oral tradition as well. I've got something that's stirring me up, so I've got to tell everyone how it is. But what I want to, want to finish today with is um, just to spend a moment in that application space and just go, what is it in my life that the Holy Spirit is shining light on today? What is it as I read this, as I observe, as I unpack it, is God shining a light on for me to take away? Now, remember last week, and this is the significance of where prophecy fits in. What is the purpose of prophecy? Edification, exhortation, and encouragement. Yeah? So if you have a sense God saying you're an idiot, give up. It's not God. Okay? <laughs> His purpose for bringing these things to life, to make them living and active, is because he wants you to know him. 
He wants you to experience his love and freedom and hope. And he wants you to be effective in the things he's called you to do. We can all agree that that is the foundation of what he's saying in terms of application. Every time, consistently across his word, that is his identity. That is his agenda. So today, as you spend a moment, I'd really encourage you to go, what is God calling me to do? What is God saying to me in this space? What is he bringing to light in this space? And when you've done that for a couple of minutes, do you remember what the P was in soap? Prayer. 